Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. It's the only thing that's really... Yeah. It's been a stressful couple weeks. It's the only thing that's really keeping me around. Other than my family. You know. It's just been... The thing about bullying... Okay. Hi, kids. Hi, parents. Hi, whoever. The thing about bullying is this. Once you've been bullied, it becomes incessantly difficult to trust anybody. Once you've been talked about behind your back, it's very difficult to not believe the next person talking behind your back because it's happened to you before and it'll happen to you again. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not saying I've been bullied recently. I haven't. I'm just saying that some things have happened that have brought feelings back that I thought were completely gone and disappeared. And yet when people have bullied you before, if they do even the smallest thing to you again, it comes right back. And the thing about social media is even if you drop them off and leave them behind a lot of people who they might have been friends with when they were acting like they were friends with you still mess with them. And so you still see them in your circles and you know what they did and they know what they did. But nobody else believes you when you tell them what they did. That's sometimes how I feel like Matilda feels like she's younger and she can't probably emote it like that. But it's just like, yo, y'all all see what she's doing to me, what what my dad is doing to me, what the Trunchbull is doing. Why are y'all not standing up? So I guess what I'm going to say before I get into chapter nine is I need y'all to start standing up. Stand up for your kids. First of all, if you're a parent listening to this, if you're an uncle listening to this or an aunt listening to this or a guardian listening to this or a friend of a family listening to this or somebody who likes kids and has kids around them listening to this, stand up for and believe your children. Before anybody else. I know a lot of us, I know I did. I don't, I I don't know. I shouldn't say a lot of us, but I know that the experience is there where a teacher would know that the biggest threat they could give is I'm going to call your parents. Principals used to have that threat too. And they knew that if they called your parents, you would collapse because as soon as your parents got a call, you were in trouble because your parents would never believe you. There was a circumstance once where my mom whooped me as soon as she got a call and picked up the phone and the teacher was like, hi, I'm Miss So-and-so. And my mom put the teacher on hold and whooped me and then came back to the phone to find out the teacher just wanted to congratulate me on winning the spelling bee that day. I had told my mom I won the spelling bee. I told her earlier that day. But when the teacher called, my mom immediately believed that something bad had happened. And so I got a whooping out jump. And then she found out that I had done something good, which I had already told her about. And so I got told that I was getting whooped for something I thought I got away with. Believe your kids. Trust your kids and let your kids know it's okay to come to you with their fears, with their worries, with their issues. Come unto me, all ye who labor, and I will give you rest. Is not just a Bible verse. It should be your life choice. It should be your mindset. If your kids, if your friends, if your people have worries, they should be able to come to you and know that you're going to trust and believe in them. And that's what kids don't have. They don't have that safety net. 
They don't have parents who believe in them because the parents grew up with parents who didn't believe in them. And so they feel like if they believe in them, they're going to make their kids soft. And that's the problem with society. Your kids are supposed to be soft. They're kids. Why should your kid want to be hard at the age of nine? What exactly is that? So protect your children. Protect them from bullies. Protect them from yourselves. And protect them from evil. Please. (sighs) Chapter 9. The Parents. When Miss Honey emerged from the headmistress's study, most of the children were outside in the playground. Her first move was to go around to the various teachers who taught the senior class and borrow from them a number of textbooks, books on algebra, geometry, French, English literature, and the like. Then she sought out Matilda and called her into the classroom. There is no point, she said, in you sitting in class doing nothing while I'm teaching the rest of the form the two times table and how to spell cat and rat and mouse. So during each lesson, I shall give you one of these textbooks to study. At the end of the lesson, you can come up to me with your questions if you have any, and I shall try to help you. How does that sound? Thank you, Miss Honey, Matilda said. That sounds fine. I'm sure, Miss Honey said, that we'll be able to get you moved into a much higher form later on. But for the moment, the headmistress wishes you to stay where you are. Very well, Miss Honey, Matilda said. Thank you so much for getting these books for me. What a nice child she is, Miss Honey thought. I don't care what her father said about her. She seems very quiet and gentle to me, and not a bit stuck up in spite of her brilliance. In fact, she hardly seems aware of it. So when the class reassembled, Matilda went to her desk and began to study an open book on geometry, which Miss Honey had given her. The teacher kept half an eye on her all the time and noticed that the child very soon became deeply absorbed in the book. She never glanced up once during the entire lesson. You know, when I was in third grade, the teachers realized that I was getting such high grades that my my mom had taught me. And so I knew stuff. And so the stuff the teachers were teaching me weren't really teaching me anything. And so I would pull out a book and read. This was the agreement that the teacher had made with my mom was that I would pull out a book, not like a school book, but I would just pull out a book and read after I finished my work, which was usually pretty early on in the sessions. Um, And then a substitute came in and they saw that I was reading and uh, told the principal and the principal called my mom. And this time my mom did stand up for me. Um, And my mom was like, yeah, he's advanced. And so he knows what is already going on. And so the teacher allows him to read a book. And the principal was like, well, we can't just let him read a book because that makes the other kids feel like he's ahead of them and he's better than them. And we don't want them to think that. And so my mom talked with the teacher and told them what the principal had said. And they came up with a idea where I was to, after I finished my work, My job was to go around and help other kids who might have questions because the teacher was, you know, busy doing other things. So I would go around and help kids with their whatever they were having issues with. And everything was fine. Like, don't shame your kids. Don't make them feel different. Don't call them out. Don't. There's better ways to be people than by thinking that you have to treat your kids the way somebody treated you. And I'm really sorry if somebody treated you like that. I am. But there's other ways to be. And you can be the difference. 
generational change can start with you. Miss Honey, meanwhile, was making another decision. She was deciding that she would go herself and have a secret talk with Matilda's mother and father as soon as possible. She simply refused to let the matter rest where it was. The whole thing was ridiculous. She couldn't believe that the parents were totally unaware of their daughter's remarkable talents. After all, Mr. Wormwood was a successful motor car dealer, so she presumed that he was fairly intelligent. In any event, parents never underestimated the abilities of their own children. Quite the reverse. Sometimes it was well nigh impossible for a teacher to convince a proud father or mother that their beloved offspring was a complete nitwit. Miss Honey felt confident that she would have no difficulty in convincing Mr. and Mrs. Wormwood that Matilda was something very special indeed. The trouble was going to be to stop them from getting over-enthusiastic. And now Miss Honey's host began to expand even further. She started wondering whether permission might not be sought from the parents for her to give private tuition to Matilda after school. The prospect of coaching a child as bright as this appealed enormously to her professional instinct as a teacher. And suddenly, she decided that she would go and call on Mr. and Mrs. Wormwood that very evening. She would go fairly late, between 9 and 10 o'clock, when Matilda was sure to be in bed. And that is precisely what she did. Having got the address from the school records, Miss Honey set out to walk from her own home to the Wormwoods' house shortly after 9. She found the house in a pleasant street where each smallish building was separated from its neighbors by a bit of garden. It was a modern brick house that could not have been cheap to buy, and the name on the gate said Cozy Nook. Nosy Cook might have been better, Miss Honey thought. She was given to playing with words in that way. She walked up the path and rang the bell, and while she stood waiting, she could hear the television blaring inside. The door was opened by a small ratty-looking man with a thin ratty mustache who was wearing a sports coat that had an orange and red stripe in the material. Yes, he said, peering out at Miss Honey. If you're selling raffle tickets, I don't want any. I'm not, Miss Honey said, and please forgive me for butting in on you like this. I'm Matilda's teacher at school, and it's important that I have a word with you and your wife. Got into trouble already, has she? Mr. Wormwood said, blocking the doorway. Well, she's your responsibility from now on. You'll have to deal with her. She's no trouble at all, and she's in no trouble at all, said Miss Honey. I've come with good news about her. Quite startling news, Mr. Wormwood. Do you think I might come in for a few minutes and talk with you about Matilda? We are right in the middle of watching one of our favorite programs, Mr. Wormwood said. This is most inconvenient. Won't you come back some other time? Miss Honey began to lose patience. Mr. Wormwood, she said, if you think some rotten TV program is more important than your daughter's future, then you ought not be a parent. Why don't you switch off the darn thing and listen to me? That shook Mr. Wormwood. He was not used to being spoken to in this way. He peered carefully at the slim, frail woman who stood so resolutely out on the porch. Oh, very well then, he snapped. Come on in and let's get it over with. Miss Honey stepped briskly inside. Miss Wormwood isn't going to thank you for this, the man said as he led her into the living room, where a large platinum blonde woman stared rapturously at the TV screen. 
Who is it? The woman said, not looking round. Some school teacher, Mr. Wormwood said. She says she's got to talk to us about Matilda. He crossed to the TV set and turned down the sound, but left the picture on the screen. Don't do that, Harry, Miss Wormwood cried out. Willard is just about to propose to Angelica. You can still watch it while we're talking, Mr. Wormwood said. This is Matilda's teacher. She says she's got some sort of news to give us. My name is Jennifer Honey, Miss Honey said. How do you do, Miss Wormwood? Miss Wormwood glared at her and said, What's the trouble then? Nobody invited Miss Honey to sit down, so she chose a chair and sat down anyway. This, she said, was your daughter's first day at school. We know that, Miss Wormwood said, ratty about missing her program. Is that all you came to tell us? Miss Honey stared hard into the other woman's wet gray eyes, and she allowed the silence to hang in the air until Miss Wormwood became uncomfortable. Do you wish me to explain why I came, she said. Get on with it then, Miss Wormwood said. I'm sure you know, Miss Honey said, that children in the bottom class at school are not expected to be able to read or spell or juggle with numbers when they first arrive. Five-year-olds cannot do that. But Matilda can do it all. And if I am to believe her, I wouldn't, Miss Wormwood said. She was still ratty at losing the sound on the TV. Was she lying then, Miss Honey said, when she told me that nobody taught her to multiply or to read? Did either of you teach her? Teach her what? Mr. Wormwood said. To read. To read books, Miss Honey said. Perhaps you did teach her. Perhaps she was lying. Perhaps you have shelves full of books all over the house. I wouldn't know. Perhaps you're both great readers. Of course we read, Mr. Wormwood said. Don't be so daft. I read the auto car and the motor from cover to cover every week. This child has already read an astonishing number of books, Miss Honey said. I was simply trying to find out if she came from a family that loved good literature. We don't hold with book reading, Mr. Wormwood said. You can't make a living from sitting on your fanny and reading storybooks. We don't keep them in the house. I see, Miss Honey said. Well, all I came to tell you was that Matilda has a brilliant mind. But I expect you knew that already. Of course I knew she could read, the mother said. She spends her life up in the room, buried in some silly book. But does it not intrigue you, Miss Honey said, that a little five-year-old child is reading long adult novels by Dickens and Hemingway? Doesn't that make you jump up and down with excitement? Not particularly, the mother said. I'm not in favor of blue stocking girls. A girl should think about making herself look attractive so she can get a good husband later on. Looks is more important than books, Miss Hunky. The name is Honey, Miss Honey said. Now look at me, Miss Wormwood said. Then look at you. You chose books. I chose looks. Miss Honey looked at the plain, plump person with the smug, suet pudding face who was sitting across the room. What did you say? she asked. I said, you chose books and I chose looks, Miss Wormwood said. And who's finished up the better off? 
Me, of course. I'm sitting pretty in a nice house with a successful businessman, and you're left slaving away teaching a lot of nasty little children the ABC. Quite right, Sugar Plum, Mr. Wormwood said, casting a look at such simpering sloppiness at his wife who would have made a cat sick. Miss Honey decided that if she was going to get anywhere with these people, she must not lose her temper. I haven't told you all of it yet, she said. Matilda, so far as I can gather at this early stage, is also a kind of mathematical genius. She can multiply complicated figures in her head like lightning. What's the point of that when you can buy a calculator, Mr. Wormwood said. A girl doesn't get a man by being brainy, Miss Wormwood said. Look at that film star, for instance, she added, pointing at the silent TV screen, where a bosomy female was being embraced by a craggy actor in the moonlight. You don't think she got him to do that by multiplying figures at him, do you? Not likely. And now he's going to marry her. You see if he doesn't. And she's going to live in a mansion with a butler and lots of maids. Miss Honey could hardly believe what she was hearing. She had heard that parents like this existed all over the place and that their children turned out to be delinquents and dropouts, but it was still a shock to me to pair them in the flesh. Matilda's trouble, she said, trying once again, is that she's so far ahead of everyone else around her that it might be worth thinking about some extra kind of private tuition. I seriously believe that she could be brought up to university standard in two or three years with the proper coaching. University, Mr. Wormwood shouted, bouncing up in his chair. Who wants to go to university, for heaven's sake? All they learn there is bad habits. This is not true, Miss Honey said. If you had a heart attack this minute and had to call a doctor, that doctor would be a university graduate. If you got sued for selling someone a rotten second-hand car, you'd have to get a lawyer and they'd be a university graduate too. Do not despise clever people, Mr. Wormwood, but I can see we're not going to agree. I'm sorry I burst in on you like this. Miss Honey rose from her chair and walked out of the room. Mr. Wormwood followed her to the front door and said, Good of you to come, Miss Hawks. Or is it Miss Harris? It's neither, Miss Honey said. But let it go. And away she went. See, now... Here's the part where I prove to you that I'm not ashamed to say I made a mistake and I made a mistake and I'm sorry. I thought that Matilda's mom was, I had forgotten. Matilda's mom is vapid and she's focused only on money chasing and she doesn't believe that her daughter's a good person either. I thought she did. Maybe it was because of that little conversation they had. That one sentence. That's sad. That I thought that that one sentence meant that she was actually concerned about her daughter's well-being. That's shame on me. That's my bad. She isn't. Chapter 10. Throwing the Hammer. The nice thing about Matilda was that if you had met her casually and talked to her, you would have thought she was a perfectly normal five and a half year old child. She displayed almost no outward signs of her brilliance, and she never showed off. This is a very sensible and quiet little girl, you would have said to yourself. And unless for some reason you had started a discussion with her about literature or mathematics, you would never have known the extent of her brain power. It was therefore easy for Matilda to make friends with other children. All those in her class liked her. 
They knew, of course, that she was clever because they had heard her being questioned by Miss Honey on the first day of term. And they knew also that she was allowed to sit quietly with the book during lessons and not pay attention to the teacher. But children of their age do not search deeply for reasons. They are far too wrapped up in their own small struggles to worry over much about what others are doing and why. Among Matilda's newfound friends was the girl called Lavender. Right from the first day of term, the two of them started wandering around together during the morning break and in the lunch hour. Lavender was exceptionally small for her age, a skinny little nymph with deep brown eyes and dark hair that was cutting her fringe across her forehead. Matilda liked her because she was gutsy and adventurous. She liked Matilda for exactly the same reasons. Before the first week of term was up, awesome tales about the headmistress, Miss Trunchbull, began to filter through to the newcomers. Matilda and Lavender, standing in a corner of the playground during morning break on the third day, was approached by a rugged 10-year-old with a boil on her nose called Hortensia. New scum, I suppose, Hortensia said to them, looking down from her great height. She was eating from an extra-large bag of potato chips and was digging the stuff out in handfuls. Welcome to Borstow, she said, spraying bits of chips out of her mouth like snowflakes. The two tiny ones, confronted by this giant, kept a watchful silence. Have you met the Trunchbull yet? Hortensia asked. We've seen her at prayers, Lavender said, but we haven't met her. You've got a treat coming to you, Hortensia said. She hates very small children. She therefore loathes the bottom class and everyone in it. She thinks five-year-olds are grubs that haven't hatched out yet. In went another fistful of chips, and when she spoke again, outspread the crumbs. If you survive your first year, you may just manage to live through the rest of your time here. But many don't survive. They get carried out on stretchers screaming. I've seen it often. Hortensia paused to observe the effect these remarks were having on the two titchy ones. Not very much. They seemed pretty cool. So the large one decided to regale them with further information. I suppose you know the Trunchbull has a lock-up cupboard in her private quarters called the Chokey. Have you heard about the Chokey? Matilda and Lavender shook their heads and continued to gaze up at the giant. Being very small, they were inclined to mistrust any creature that was larger than them, especially senior girls. The Chokey, Hortensia went on, is a very tall but very narrow cupboard. The floor is only 10 inches square, so you can't sit down or squat in it. You have to stand. And three of the walls are made with cement with bits of broken glass sticking out all over so you can't lean against them. You have to stand more or less at attention all the time when you get locked up in there. It's terrible. Can't you lean against the door? Matilda asked. Don't be daft, Hortensia said. The door's got thousands of sharp, spiky nails sticking out of it. They've been hammered through from the outside, probably by the Trunchbull herself. Have you ever been in there? Lavender asked. My first term, I was in there six times, Hortensia said. Twice for a whole day, and the other times for two hours each. But two hours is quite bad enough. It's pitch dark, and you have to stand up dead straight, and if you wobble at all, you get spiked either by the glass on the walls or the nails on the door. Why were you put in? Matilda asked. What had you done? The first time, Hortensia said. I poured half a tin of golden syrup on the seat of the chair the Trunchbull was going to sit on at prayers. It was wonderful. 
When she lowered herself into the chair, there was a loud squelching noise similar to that made by a hippopotamus when lowering his foot into the mud on the banks of the Limpopo River. But you're too small and stupid to have read the Just So stories, aren't you? I've read them, Matilda said. You're a liar, Hortensia said amiably. You can't even read yet. But no matter. So when the Trunchbull sat down the golden syrup, the squelch was beautiful. And when she jumped up again, the chair sort of stuck to the seat of those awful green breeches she wears and came up with her for a few seconds until the thick syrup slowly became unstuck. Then she clasped her hands to the seat of her breeches and both hands got covered in the muck. You should have heard her bellow. But how does she know it was you? Lavender asked. A little squirt called Ollie Bogwhistle sneaked on me, Hortensia said. I knocked his front teeth out. And the Trunchbull put you in the chokey for a whole day? Matilda asked, gulping. All day long, Hortensia said. I was off my rocker when she let me out. I was babbling like an idiot. What were the other things you did to get put in the chokey? Lavender asked. Oh, I can't remember them all now, Hortensia said. She spoke with the air of an old warrior who had been in so many battles that bravery had become commonplace. It's all so long ago, she added. Stuffing more chips into her mouth. Ah, yes. I can't remember one. Here's what happened. I chose a time when I knew the Trunchbull was out of the way teaching the sixth formers, and I put up my hand and asked to go to the bogs. But instead of going there, I sneaked into the Trunchbull's room, and after a speedy search, I found the drawer where she kept all of her gym knickers. Go on, Matilda said, spellbound. What happened next? I sent away by post, you see, for this very powerful itching powder, Hortensia said. It cost 50 pence a packet and was called the Skin Scorcher. The label said that it was made from the powdered teeth of deadly snakes, and it was guaranteed to raise welts the size of walnuts on your skin. So I sprinkled this stuff inside of every pair of knickers in the drawer and then folded them up again carefully. Hortensia paused to cram more chips into her mouth. Did it work? Lavender asked. Well, Hortensia said, a few days later, during prayers, the Trunchbull suddenly started scratching herself like mad down below. Aha, I said to myself, here we go. She's changed for Jim already. It was pretty wonderful to be sitting there watching it all and knowing that I was the only person in the whole school who realized exactly what was going on inside the Trunchbull's pants. And I felt safe, too. I knew I couldn't be caught. Then the scratching got worse. She couldn't stop. She must have thought she had a wasp nest down there. And then, right in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, she leapt up and grabbed her bottom and rushed out the room. Both Matilda and Lavender were enthralled. It was quite clear to them that they were at this moment standing in the presence of a master. Here was somebody who had brought the art of skullduggery to the highest point of perfection. Somebody, moreover, who was willing to risk life and limb in pursuit of her calling. They gazed in wonder at this goddess. And suddenly, even the boil on her nose is no longer a blemish, but a badge of courage. But how did she catch you that time? Lavender asked, breathless with wonder. She didn't, Hortensia said. But I got a day in the chokey just the same. Why? They both asked. The trunch bull, Hortensia said, has a nasty habit of guessing. When she doesn't know who the culprit is... 
She makes a guess at it, and the trouble is she's often right. I was the prime suspect this time because of the golden syrup job, and although I knew she didn't have any proof, nothing I said made any difference. I kept shouting, How could I have done it, Miss Trunchbull? I didn't even know you kept any spare knickers at school. I don't even know what itching powder is. I've never heard of it. But the line didn't help me in spite of the great performance I put on. The Trunchbull simply grabbed me by one ear and rushed me to the chokey at the double and threw me inside and locked the door. This was my second all-day stretch. It was absolute torture. I was spiked and cut all over when I came out. It's like a war, Matilda said, overawed. You're darn right it's like a war, Hortensia cried. And the casualties are terrific. We are the Crusaders, the gallant army fighting for our lives and hardly any weapons at all. And the Trunchbull is a prince of darkness, the foul serpent, the fiery dragon with all the weapons at her command. It's a tough life. We all try to support each other. You can rely on us, Lavender said, making her height of three feet, two inches stretch as tall as possible. No, I can't, Hortensia said. You're only shrimps. But you never know. We may find a use for you one day in some undercover job. Tell us just a little bit more about what she does, Matilda said. Please do. I mustn't frighten you before you've been here a week, Hortensia said. You won't, Lavender said. We may be small, but we're quite tough. Listen to this, then, Hortensia said. Only yesterday, the Trunchbull caught a boy called Julius Rockwinkle, eating licorice all sorts during the scripture lesson, and she simply picked him up by one arm and flung him clear out the open classroom window. Our classroom is one floor up, and we saw Julius Rotwinkle go sailing out over the garden like a frisbee and landing with a thump in the middle of the lettuces. Then the Trunchbull turned to us and said, From now on, anybody caught eating in class goes straight out the window. Did this Julius Rotwinkle break any bones? Lavender asked. Only a few, Hortensia said. You've got to remember that the Trunchbull once threw the hammer for Britain. In the Olympics, so she's very proud of her right arm. What's throwing the hammer? Lavender asked. The hammer, Hortensia said, is actually a ruddy great cannonball on the end of a long bit of wire, and the thrower whisks it round and round his or her head faster and faster and then lets it go. You have to be terrifically strong. The trunch will throw anything around just to keep her arm in, especially children. Good heavens, Lavender said. I once heard her say, Hortensia went on, that a large boy is about the same weight as an Olympic hammer, and therefore, he's very useful for practicing with. At that point, something strange happened. The playground, which up to then had been filled with shrieks and the shouting of children at play, all at once became silent as the grave. Watch out, Hortensia whispered. Matilda and Lavender glanced around and saw the gigantic figure of Miss Trunchbull advancing through the crowds of boys and girls with menacing strides. The children drew back hastily to let her through, and her progress across the asphalt was like that of Moses going through the Red Sea when the waters parted. A formidable figure she was, too, in her belted smock and green breeches. Below the knees, her calf muscles stood out like grapefruits inside her stockings. Amanda Thripp, she was shouting. You, Amanda Thripp, come here. Hold your hats, Hortensia whispered. What's going to happen, Lavender whispered back. 
That idiot Amanda, Hortensia said, has let her long hair grow even longer during the howls, and her mother has plaited them into pigtails. Silly thing to do. Why silly? Matilda asked. If there's one thing the Trunchbull can't stand, it's pigtails, Hortensia said. Matilda and Lavender saw the giant in green breeches advancing upon a girl of about ten, who had a pair of plated golden pigtails hanging over her shoulders. Each pigtail had a blue satin bow at the end of it, and it all looked very pretty. The girl wearing the pigtails, Amanda Thripp, stood quite still, watching the advancing giant, and the expression on her face was one that you might find on the face of a person who was trapped in a small field with an enraged bull that's charging flat out towards her. The girl was glued to the spot, terror-struck, pop-eyed, quivering, knowing for certain that the day of judgment had come for her at last. Miss Trunchbull had now reached the victim and stood towering over her. I want those filthy pigtails off before you I want those filthy pigtails off before you come back to school tomorrow, she barked. Chop them off and throw them in the dustbin. Do you understand? Amanda, paralyzed with fright, managed to stutter. My mummy likes them. She plates them for me every morning. Your mummy's a twit, the Trunchbull bellowed. She pointed a finger the size of a salami at the child's head and shouted. You look like a rat with a tail coming out of his head. My mummy thinks I look lovely, Miss Trunchbull, Amanda stuttered, shaking like a blanche manche. I don't give a tinker's toot what your mummy thinks, the Trunchbull yelled, and with that she lunged forward and grabbed hold of Amanda's pigtails in her right fist and lifted the girl clear off the ground. Then she started swinging her around and around her head, faster and faster, and Amanda was screaming blue murder, and the Trunchbull was yelling, I'll give you pigtails, you little rat. Shades of the Olympics, Hortensia murmured. She's getting up to speed now, just as she does with the hammer. Ten to one, she's going to throw her. And now the Trunchbull was leaning back against the weight of the whirling girl and pivoting expertly on her toes spinning round and round, and soon Amanda Thripp was traveling so fast she became a blur. And suddenly, with a mighty grunt, the Trunchbull let go of the pigtails, and Amanda went sailing like a rocket right over the wire fence of the playground and high up into the sky. Well thrown, sir! Someone shouted from across the playground, and Matilda, who was mesmerized by the whole crazy affair, saw Amanda Thripp descending in a long, graceful parabola onto the playing field beyond. She landed on the grass and bounced three times and finally came to rest. Then, amazingly, she sat up. She looked a trifle dazed and who could blame her? But after a minute or so, she was on her feet again and tottering back towards the playground. The Trunchbull stood in the playground, dusting off her hands. Not bad, she said, considering I'm not in strict training. Not bad at all. Then she strode away. She's mad, Hortensia said. But don't the parents complain? Matilda asked. Would yours? Hortensia asked. I know mine wouldn't. She treats the mothers and fathers just the same as the children, and they're all scared to death of her. I'll be seeing you sometime, you two. And with that, she sauntered away. Chapter 11. Bruce Bogtrotter and the Cake How can she get away with it? Lavender said to Matilda. Surely the children go home and tell their mothers and fathers. 
I know my father would raise a terrific stink if I told him the headmistress had grabbed me by the hair and slung me over the playground fence. No, he wouldn't, Matilda said, and I'll tell you why. He simply wouldn't believe you. Of course he would. He wouldn't, Matilda said, and the reason is obvious. Your story would sound too ridiculous to be believed, and that is a Trunchbull's great secret. What is? Lavender asked. Matilda said, never do anything by halves if you want to get away with it. Be outrageous. Go to whole hog. Make sure everything you do is so completely crazy, it's unbelievable. No parent is going to believe this pigtail story. Not in a million years. Mine wouldn't. They call me a liar. In that case, Lavender said, Amanda's mother isn't going to cut her pigtails off. No. She isn't, Matilda said. Amanda will do it herself. You see if she doesn't. Do you think she's mad? Lavender asked. Who? The Trunchbull. No. I don't think she's mad, Matilda said. But she's very dangerous. Being in this school is like being in a cage with a cobra. You have to be very fast on your feet. They got another example of how dangerous the headmistress could be on the very next day. During lunch, an announcement was made that the whole school would go to the assembly hall and be seated as soon as the meal was over. When all the 250 or so boys and girls were settled down in the assembly, the Trunchbull marched onto the platform. None of the other teachers came in with her. She was carrying a riding crop in her right hand. She stood there on center stage with her green breeches with legs apart and a riding crop in hand, staring at the sea of upturned faces before her. What's going to happen? Lavender whispered. I don't know, Matilda whispered back. The whole school waited for what was coming next. Bruce Bogtrotter, the Trunchbull barked suddenly. Where is Bruce Bogtrotter? A hand shot up amongst the seated children. Come up here, the Trunchbull shouted, and look smart about it. An 11-year-old boy who was decidedly large and round stood up and waddled briskly forward. He climbed onto the platform. Stand over there, the Trunchbull ordered, pointing. The boy stood to one side. He looked nervous. He knew very well he wasn't up there to be presented with the prize. He was watching the headmistress with an exceedingly wary eye, and he kept edging farther and farther away from her with light little shuffles of his feet. Rather as a rat might edge away from a terrier that's watching it from across the room. His plump, flabby face had turned gray with fearful apprehension. His stockings hung around his ankles. Gonna tell y'all again, this is me, real quick, gonna tell you again, and kids, you may not know this because I don't know if I... Yes, I did, I said it on holes. I don't like fat shaming, and I don't like anybody doing it, and I don't like... Yeah, I don't. I don't like it. This clot... Boomed the headmistress, pointing the riding crop at him like a rapier. This blackhead, this foul carbuncle, this poisonous pustule that you see before you is none other than a disgusting criminal, a denizen of the underworld, a member of the mafia. Who? Me? Bruce Bogtrotter said, looking genuinely puzzled. A thief, the Trunchbull screamed. A crook, a pirate, a brigand, a rustler. Steady on. The boy said, I mean, dash it all, headmistress. 
Do you deny it, you miserable little gumboil? Do you plead not guilty? I don't know what you're talking about, the boy said, more puzzled than ever. I'll tell you what I'm talking about, you separating little blister, the trunchbull shouted. Yesterday morning, during break, you sneaked like a serpent into the kitchen and stole a slice of my private chocolate cake from my tea tray. That tray had just been prepared for me personally by the cook. It was my morning snack. And as for the snack, it was my own private stock. That was not boy's cake. You don't think for one minute I'm going to eat the filth I give to you. That cake was made from real butter and real cream. And he, that robber bandit, that safe cracker, that highwayman standing over there with his socks around his ankles, he stole it and ate it. I never did, the boy exclaimed, turning from gray to white. Don't lie to me, bog trotter, barked the trunch bull. The cook saw you. What's more, she saw you eating it. The trench bull paused to wipe a fleck of froth from her lips. When she spoke again, her voice was suddenly softer, quieter, more friendly, and she leaned towards the boy, smiling. You like my special chocolate cake, don't you, Bog Trotter? It's rich and delicious, isn't it, Bog Trotter? Very good, the boy mumbled. The words were out of his mouth before he could stop himself. You're right, the trench bull said. It is very good. Therefore, I think you should congratulate the cook. When a gentleman has had a particularly good meal, Bog Trotter, he always sends his compliments to the chef. You didn't know that, did you, Bog Trotter? But those who inhabit the criminal underworld are not noted for their good manners. The boy remained silent. This is me. That's his right. He has a right to remain silent, so I'm not mad at him. Cook, the trench bull shouted, turning her head towards the door. Come here, cook. Bog Trotter wished to tell you how good your chocolate cake is. The cook, a tall, shriveled female who looked as though all of her body juices had been dried out of her long ago in a hot oven, walked onto the platform wearing a dirty white apron. Her entrance had clearly been arranged beforehand by the headmistress. Now then, Bog Trotter, the trench bull boomed. Tell Cook what you think of her chocolate cake. Very good, the boy mumbled. You could see he was now beginning to wonder what all this was leading up to. The only thing he knew for certain was that the law forbade the trunch bull to hit him with the riding crop that she kept smacking against her thigh. That was some comfort, but not much because the trunch bull was totally unpredictable. One never knew what she was going to do next. There you are, Cook, the trunch bull cried. Bog Trotter likes your cake. He adores your cake. Do you have any more of your cake you can give him? I do indeed, the cook said. She seemed to have learned her lines by heart. Then go and get it, and bring a knife to cut it with. The cook disappeared. Almost at once she was back again, staggering under the weight of an enormous round chocolate cake on a china platter. The cake was fully 18 inches in diameter, and it was covered with dark brown chocolate icing. Put it on the table, the trench bull said. There was a small table center stage with a chair behind it. The cook placed the cake carefully on the table. Sit down, Bog Trotter, the trench bull said. Sit there. The boy moved cautiously to the table and sat down. He stared at the gigantic cake. There you are, Bog Trotter, the trench bull said, and once again her voice became soft, 
persuasive, even gentle. It's all for you. Every bit of it. As you enjoyed that slice you had yesterday so very much, I ordered Cook to bake you an extra large one all for yourself. Well, thank you, the boy said, totally bemused. Thank Cook, not me, the Trunchbull said. Thank you, Cook, the boy said. The cook stood there like a shriveled bootlace, tight-lipped, implacable, disapproving. She looked as though her mouth was full of lemon juice. Come on, then, the Trunchbull said. Why don't you cut yourself a nice thick slice and try it? What? Now? The boy said, cautious. He knew there was a catch in this somewhere, but he wasn't sure where. Can't I take it home instead? He asked. That would be impolite, the Trunchbull said with a crafty grin. You must show Cookie here how grateful you are for all the trouble she's taken. The boy didn't move. Go on, get on with it, the Trunchbull said. Cut a slice and taste it. We haven't got all day. The boy picked up the knife and was about to cut into the cake when he stopped. He stared at the cake. Then he looked up at the Trunchbull. Then at the tall, stringy cook with her lemon juice mouth. All the children in the hall were watching tensely, waiting for something to happen. They felt certain it must. The Trunchbull was not a person who would just give someone a whole chocolate cake to eat just out of kindness. Many were guessing that it had been filled with pepper or castor oil or some other foul-tasting substance that would make the boy violently sick. It might even be arsenic and the boy would be dead in 10 seconds flat. Or perhaps it was a booby trap cake and the whole thing would blow up the minute it was cut taking Bruce Bogtrotter with it. No one in the school put a past the Trunchbull to do any of these things. I don't want to eat it, the boy said. Taste it, you little brat, the Trunchbull said. You're insulting the cook. Very gingerly, the boy began to cut a thin slice of the vast cake. Then he levered the slice out. Then he put down the knife and took the sticky thing in his fingers and slowly started to eat it. It's good, isn't it? Very good, the boy said, chewing and swallowing. He finished the slice. Have another, the Trunchbull said. That's enough, thank you, the boy murmured. I said, have another, the Trunchbull said, and now there was an altogether sharper edge to her voice. Eat another slice. Do as you're told. I don't want another slice, the boy said. Suddenly, the Trunchbull exploded. Eat, she shouted, banging her thigh with the riding crop. If I tell you to eat, you will eat. You wanted cake, you stole cake, and now you've got cake. What's more, you're going to eat it. You do not leave this platform, and nobody leaves this hall until you've eaten the entire cake that's sitting in front of you. Do I make myself clear, Bogtrotter? Do you get my meaning? The boy looked at the Trunchbull. Then he looked down at the enormous cake. Eat, 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 the Trunchbull was yelling. Very slowly, the boy cut himself another slice and began to eat it. Matilda was fascinated. Do you think you can do it? She whispered to Lavender. No, Lavender whispered back. It's impossible. He'd be sick before he's halfway through. The boy kept going. When he finished the second slice, he looked at the Trunchbull, hesitating. Eat, 
she shouted. Greedy little thieves who like to eat cake must have cake. Eat faster, boy. Eat faster. We don't want to be here all day. And don't stop like you're doing now. Next time you stop before it's all finished, you'll go straight into the chokey, and I'll lock the door and throw the key down the well. The boy cut a third slice and started to eat it. He finished this one quicker than the other two, and when that was done, he immediately picked up the knife and cut the next slice. In some peculiar way, he seemed to be getting into a stride. Matilda, watching closely, saw no signs of distress in the boy yet. If anything, he seemed to be gathering confidence as he went along. He's doing well, she whispered to Lavender. He'll be sick soon, Lavender whispered back. It's gonna be horrid. When Bruce Bogtrotter had eaten his way through half of the entire enormous cake, he paused for just a couple of seconds and took several deep breaths. The Trunchbull stood with hands on hips, glaring at him. Get on with it, she shouted. Eat it up! Suddenly, the boy let out a gigantic belch which rolled around the assembly hall like thunder. Many of the audience began to giggle. Silence, shouted the Trunchbull. The boy cut himself another thick slice and started eating it fast. There were still no signs of flagging or giving up. He certainly did not look as if he was going to stop and cry out, I can't, I can't eat anymore, I'm going to be sick. He was still in the running. And now a subtle change is coming over to 250 watching children in the audience. Earlier on, they had sensed impending disaster. They had prepared themselves for an unpleasant scene in which the wretched boy, stuffed to the gills with chocolate cake, would have to surrender and beg for mercy, and then they would have watched the triumphant crunch bull forcing more and still more cake into the mouth of the gasping boy. Not a bit of it. Bruce Bogtrotter was three quarters of the way through, and still going strong. One sensed that he was almost beginning to enjoy himself. He had a mountain to climb and he was jolly well going to reach the top or die in the attempt. What is more, he had now become very conscious of his audience and of how they were all silently rooting for him. This was nothing less than a battle between him and the mighty Trunchbull. Suddenly someone shouted out, Come on, Brucey, you can make it! The Trunchbull wheeled around and yelled, Silence! The audience watched intently. They were thoroughly caught up in the contest. They were longing to start cheering, but they didn't dare. I think he's going to make it. Matilda whispered. I think so too, Lavender whispered back. I wouldn't have believed anyone in the world could eat the whole of a cake that size. The Trunchbull doesn't believe it either, Matilda whispered. Look at her. She's turning redder and redder. She's going to kill him if he wins. The boy was slowing down now. There was no doubt about that. But he kept pushing the stuff into his mouth with the dogged perseverance of a long-distance runner, who has sighted the finish line and knows he must now keep going. As the very last mouthful disappeared, a tremendous cheer rose up from the audience. Children were leaping onto their chairs and yelling and clapping and shouting, Well done, Brucey! Good for you, Brucey! You won a gold medal, Brucey! The Trunchbull stood motionless on the platform. Her great horsey face had turned the color of molten lava, and her eyes were glittering with fury. She glared at Bruce Bogtrotter, who was sitting on his chair like some huge overstuffed grub, replete, comatose, unable to move or to speak. A fine sweat was beating his forehead, but there was a grin of triumph on his face. Suddenly, the trunchbull lunged forward and grabbed the large empty china platter on which the cake had rested. 
She raised it high in the air and brought it down with a crash right on top of the wretched Bruce Bogtrotter's head and pieces flew all over the platform. The boy was by now so full of cake he was like a sack full of wet cement and you couldn't have hurt him with a sledgehammer. He simply shook his head a few times and went on grinning. Go to blazes, screamed the trench bull, and she marched off the platform, followed closely by the cook. See, here's what the trench bull wanted to happen, and here's why she did what she did. She wanted them to come in after lunch, because she knew Bruce was going to eat lunch because he's a bigger boy. She knew he'd eat lunch, he'd come in after lunch, his stomach would be full from lunch, and then he'd have to eat this whole and giant, in, in giant, this whole cake. And then he conquered it. So she resorted to violence. That's so horrible in so many different ways. And and to know that the parents wouldn't have done a thing, didn't do a thing for Amanda, wouldn't have done a thing for Bruce. Don't do things for their kids when their kids come home and tell them, I got stuck in a box with glass sticking out of it and nails sticking out of it. And I had to stand there all day long. Parents, we have to stand up for our kids. I mean, I know that, yeah, you, a lot of people may think that because somebody's in a position that exudes power or is supposed to exude power, that they're better than you or stronger than you or more worthy of respect than you or meaner, meaner than you or whatever it may be. And that's not true. A principal is nothing more than a teacher who got promoted. They don't apply to be, you know, they don't go to school to be a principal. There's no studies for principal. They go to school to be a teacher and then they graduate from college and they go work as a teacher. And then over the span of time, a position might open up and they'll be promoted. And that's how you become a principal or a vice principal. There's no pomp and circumstance to it. You just apply for a job. It's a promotion. So your son or daughter or a gender non-conforming child, your child, let's do it like that. Your child may have a teacher in the fourth grade that by the time they're in sixth grade will be their principal. Would you be worried about them then? Would you be scared to talk to the principal then? Would you be scared to stand up for your child then? No, then don't be scared to stand up for this one because this one was somebody's second grade teacher at some point too. I tell teachers, I'm like, yo, don't come for my child because I have receipts and you'll get read. If you don't believe me, parents, I have a um, show on, on one of my other podcasts called Single Simulcast where a teacher came for my child and they got checked. Hit me up and I will give you the link to it. Anyhow, 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. You can leave a review on Podchaser, and then you can copy that review and paste it in the Apple Podcast, and then you can copy that review and you can paste it in the Good Pods. Uh, you can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast or at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast, or you can go to uh, Good Pods and go to their tip jar and leave a tip. All money will go towards purchasing books and movies. The movies are for my other show, Hindsight. Thank you so much for listening. I do greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace.
an outro to Ratchet Book Club is by that kid Garan, and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my name, and you say.